You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Chapter 9 of Hebrews today, we'll be going through the the rest of chapter 9, 13 through 28. So I sort of had stopped short and last week with 12 all right we we started chapter 9 we were seeing the contrast of the the physical old testament tabernacle and christ we end there at 12 mentioning the blood of christ and securing an eternal redemption and could have could have went on but i i just wanted to keep it together uh some sometimes the divisions in the bible that we have made aren't necessarily good for outlines all the time. So the contrast is moving from that physical tabernacle and that ongoing activity of the, of the priests, right, to the blood now, all right? So we'll, we'll just, we'll back up to verse 11 just to get context. We'll see 11 and 12 again, uh, and, and we'll go through 14 starting off. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And we'll stop there right now. So the the writer uses these two instances in the Old Testament system, the worship system, as examples. This blood of goats and bulls, referring to the Day of Atonement, and the ashes of a heifer, which that that is reference to the ordinance of the red heifer in Numbers. It's only in the Bible once in Numbers too, and everybody today who are big on Israel are like, they got a red heifer. And it's only <laughs> it's like a big a big point of concern to people to have a red heifer with no blemishes, uh, but he's referring to those. So those old two those two Old Testament sacrifices had an, an effect. It said that they purified the flesh, but that was only temporary. It was external and it was just ceremonial cleansing. All right, the sprinkling with the ashes of a heifer was prescribed for this ceremonial cleansing. Uh, to a person who had been in contact with a dead body. If you touched a dead person, then you had to be cleansed. So if, if the blood of these animal sacrifices served 
for the cleansing of persons defiled in these external senses, how much more shall the blood of Jesus achieve the radical inward cleansing of the conscience? If the shadow purified the flesh, how much more does the truth then purify the spirit, the soul, your mind, right? It says of Jesus that he offered himself. It was his own doing. We know this. Nobody could take his life. He gave his life up. And in this, this free voluntary act of self-offering, he fulfilled the purpose of his coming into the world, right? So it's a very big contrast. What a contrast, right? Between the death of animals and the death of Jesus, the eternal son. One is a non-moral creature. The other, the creator. <laughs> One's brought by somebody, probably by, you know, a leash, by, to be sacrificed. Christ came on his own free Will, I guess you could say, is that, <laughs> but according to himself. Christ offered himself through the eternal spirit, it says. That's a reference, I believe, to the Holy Spirit, not, not to just his, Christ's divine nature. Jesus uh, did do everything through the Holy Spirit in obedience to the Father, including his sacrifice and his death. Um, you could see the human experience in his prayer to a asking the Father for that cup of suffer suffering to be passed from him if, if God would sh should be willing. That's the human experience. He knew how bad the beatings and the crucifixion was going to be. The Holy Spirit empowered him to go through that. It was the Father's will. So Christ's blood is said to cleanse our conscience. And the conscience then is our inner knowledge, right? Our in, inner knowledge of ourselves and the things that we have done or do or think about. It's the sense of the, to be able to answer for our motives and our actions in the view of the fact that as a creature, we really give an account to our creator. But by faith in Jesus, we are justified and righteous before God. So in the old covenant, there had been no sacrifice that could truly take away human sin. There had been these animal sacrifices, but Hebrews uh, later in Hebrews 10, we'll see that it says plainly, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the new covenant promises that these sins will be taken away, which means that the foundation of the new covenant is a better sacrifice. Namely, it's the, sacri the, the sacrifice of God's own son. So the new covenant is all about how God deals with sin to make us right with him. How he deals with guilt and condemnation of sin by sending his son to die for sinners. So we could, there could be forgiveness and a cleansing and then a good conscience standing before God. That's the new covenant. That's Christianity, right? And at the death of Christ, the shedding of his blood is the basis of it. 
By his blood shedding, he purchased our justification. He purchased our sanctification. And he takes away the guilt and our corruption. So verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a a death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So it's effective, all right? The, The effectiveness of the death of our Lord is that he's the mediator of the new covenant, which means reconciler. He's the the go-between, if you will. Jesus, by the act of his death, became the mediator um, between God and man. Man and God had been separated by the the fall, by by sin, and the wages of sin is death, so death is separation. Uh, Spiritual death, or, or some will say physical death, but because of man's sinfulness, Separated from a holy God. Therefore, he, he, Jesus, is the mediator. And now it has that line who, so that those who are called may receive. And I could go two routes there, but I don't want to lose our focus on the actual point here. So we're not going to go there. If you have questions about it, we can talk about it later. 16 and 17. For Okay, so this is a will part here, okay? For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it alive. All right, this is basically like a last will, like a living will, last will and testament, right? That's what he's going for here. Um... So he, he's going, he makes this comparison between the New Covenant and the Last Will and Testament. Everyone here knows what that is. And the basis of the New Covenant is the death of Jesus. All right, So a death had to take place to give force and validate this New Covenant. So it, it's like a Last Will and Testament... Because a will doesn't come into effect until the tester dies, right? As long as he is alive, he, he could change his will. He could write in or out people, right? Nobody will receive anything until he dies. So it, it, it's, it's to that universally accepted truth and practice that the writer here approaches Uh, this in 16 and 17 in order to indicate to us that if we are to receive the promised inheritance that Jesus as the testator had uh, had he had to die the the other reason for this comparison is that he just he referred to that in eternal inheritance so we can all see that if there is indeed an inheritance, then there must be some kind of a last will and testament that tells who the heirs are, right? And what the, what the inheritance is, what they get. That is, that's what he says the, the new covenant does. And he uses this comparison because a will, right? A will is not something the heirs negotiate about. You don't have say in that. It, it's, it comes 
specifically from the one who wrote it down and the heirs take it, they take it or leave it as it is, right? They can't change the decisions of the one who wrote the will, all right? You, this is how it is, right? So the new covenant's been drawn up by God and Jesus without consulting the heirs or anyone else. Therefore, it is a sovereign expression of God's will and is not a negotiated agreement, right? That's the point here. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was uh, inaugurated without blood. All right, so unless anyone finds fault with the new covenant requiring the death of Jesus, the writer here immediately points out that even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. It had to have blood too. And that's all that means. So we're going to look at 19 through 22. I'll read that and then break it up. For, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Okay. Just think about that. New Covenant's a lot better. You don't have to get sprinkled with blood and water. Right? A lot of people wouldn't like that. A lot of blood here. He says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. All right, so this is <laughs> at the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant. This is in Exodus 24. There's burnt offerings, peace offerings of oxen were being sacrificed to God by uh, these appointed men. Moses, then he takes half of the blood from these offerings and he, he threw it against the altar, which he had erected at the foot of Mount Sinai. All right. And then he reads the book of the covenant in which he had written the divine, uh, uh, divine precepts to everyone there, to all of the Israelites. And they respond, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And the remainder then of the blood was then sprinkled over the people by Moses as he spoke with these words. Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the, which the Lord is made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, we, we, it was like last week when we left. We forget how many people were... There's like, including women and children, there could have been like a million people here, okay? The whole, like in the wilderness, wandering for 40 years, like a million people. So here's like a million people. That's a lot of blood to sprinkle on people, Right? A lot of animals were being killed. There's a lot of blood, though, right? He had to go around and do that. I don't think we gather how bloody all this was in, in the Old Covenant. But it, it was meant to impress on them that sin cannot be set aside even by a loving God without death occurring, okay? People must realize that Sin is serious, since only death can relieve it. 
So the climax then is found in the point that even the old covenant knew no forgiveness apart from the blood. So his aim, the aim is to show that the law itself foreshadowed the necessity of the death of Jesus. All right. Exodus 12, 13 says, Now the, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses when, where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is Passover, right? And they take the blood, put it above their doors. That way the angel of death does not come and take their firstborn. All right? It was the blood of a sacrificial lamb that made the difference. And we know for us, then, it's the blood of Jesus. His blood is far superior than any bull or any goat that could ever be offered on our behalf. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. I had to read this several times. It's a weird sentence to me all right <laughs> i don't know why thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these it's weird to me is it weird to you okay so i was like i'm like what is that like this is, is weird so then you come across these different takes on it and but we have this 1400 years okay that God uh, willed the death of his son, Jesus, through the foreshadowing and anticipated like in history among the Jewish people through these animal sacrifices and their tabernacle and their worship. And the author says that these things, the tabernacle, the vessels, the relics, were all copies of a greater reality that are in heaven. So as copies, they could be ceremonially cleansed by blood from the sacrifices of these calves and goats and because that's the way that God had ordained it. Now, to, like I said, it's an odd sentence. It, it seems to be saying that even the heavenly things themselves needed to be purified, which makes it even more odd then because why would that be necessary? So it was a weird text. So I started to see some weird interpretations. Some had said, now they, I don't, I'm saying no to these views. I'm just letting you guys know, okay? Some say it's because heaven had been darkened by God's wrath, okay? But that doesn't make sense because that makes a major misconception of his wrath then. All right, his wrath and his justice go together along with his love. So therefore, his wrath isn't bad. So therefore, it couldn't make anything dark because darkness is of the opposite, right? It makes no sense. Uh, others say it needed purified because the devil had been an angel and rebelled. And I don't even think he was this angel that rebelled. So, but put that aside <laughs> that's another topic but it still would make sense because this is where god like this is the, where god's presence that is all right and there's a 
lot more views. And I kept, it was a rabbit hole. And I was like, this is weird. And I don't believe that was God's intention here. Okay. The Holy Spirit's inspiring, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is inspiring the author here. This is not his intention for us to get on some weird rabbit trail here and to come up with some odd things and pre, like uh, presupposition to force onto the text. There is simply, you have to remember in context, context, a contrast that is happening here. He is showing us that atonement really matters and that Christ is appearing in the presence of God before us here. All right. So whether there's purification going on in the heavenly realm, you know, I, I don't know. But all of this was always showing that Jesus was going before God, before the Father, as the perfect sacrifice with the covenant. Right. The new covenant, if you will, if there is an ark of the new covenant in heaven then he's just he's going there as the mediator as it's already pointed out as better blood blood that is superior going before the father and that's i'm like that that seems just to be valid enough there to leave it there all right so i heard people saying that yeah it was the the devil and he rebelled and there's his army and then so jesus had to go into heaven with his own blood and sprinkle it over everything in heaven to purify it and to make it right again. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> None of that made sense to me. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And I think that's what he's trying to get at. The earthly tabernacle versus heaven itself. And the now, all right, now we have to remember was the first century Hebrew saints. At that present time, Christ appeared in heaven before the presence of God for us. For them, but also for us is applicable to all believers. But during the first century, Christ appeared in heaven for believers, and he is still there, and he is there praying for us. 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus ascended into heaven. He's standing before the throne of grace on our behalf for us. There's no sorrow, no tragedy, no need that we could experience that he's not aware of because he's praying for you. And he went through the human experience himself. And again here, the background is the day of atonement. And the, the author contrasts the repetitiveness of the Levitical sacrifices to the once for all, all right, singular sacrifice of Jesus. His sacrifice was a real sacrifice. It was not a token one. 
And it is perpetually effective and therefore calls for no repetition. And his sacrifice did call for it, it says, then he would have to endure suffering and death over and over and over again throughout the ages of world history, which is impossible according to verse 26 because it says he appeared once for all. So notice when it was he appeared. At the end of the ages. So you know I can't let that slide. Um, my eschatology. We saw this in chapter 1 long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world, right? So uh, in these last days was first century. Here it says... Uh, the end of the ages. A lot of people today in what here Western Christianity today say we're living in the last days of the, the end times. It was a year ago this month I saw all my memories pop up. Um, the coin shortage. You guys remember the coin shortage? After a lot of the lockdowns and, and they were starting to ease up on some restrictions, there was this coin shortage. And everybody, every, uh, they're like, get ready for the one world currency, Mark of the Beast. <laughs> and I was like, it's not, that's not, it's not even in the Bible. You, you take one verse, it's literally one verse, one verse. You'll, you'll need a mark to buy and sell. That doesn't necessarily, that doesn't mean a one world currency. I mean, we're sort of stretching the text there, but that was a year ago. All right. So I we're good on coins this cycles through if you've been around long enough cycles through in like another few years something else will come along the big thing now is aliens right because um, the government's releasing information on aliens right so um, a lot of Christians are saying uh, the enemy's in control of that Preparing all those who aren't saved to blame aliens. So the government will be able to say when the, if a rapture happens, which I don't believe in. But when the rapture happens, they can say the aliens took all the Christians. <laughs> I know. Right? So that, that, that's their interpretation. And artificial intelligence is summoning demons. And things like I listen to all these podcasts and stuff during the week, so it can make me angry. <laughs> Gives me something to complain about. But end of the ages. All right, I just rambling. Sorry. The end talked about in the Bible is the end of the Jewish age, the end of the old covenant. It would end with the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, and that happened in seventy A.D. It was not the last days of the planet Earth or the end of the world. It's the last days or the end of the age of Judaism. Now, whether there's going to be a last day, actual last day, day of the Lord and judgment, I don't know. But all the other stuff, it's, it's not there if you keep it in context. So, 
The author is referring to the end of the Jewish age, the end of the covenant age, saying that Jesus came then at the end of the ages to put away sin. That signifies the total annulment of sin, all right? Doesn't mean it takes sin out of the world, but the annulment of sin to those who come by faith and its consequences then are absorbed by him and then removed from you. That's done by the absolute perfection of Jesus. The last two verses, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So, he reinforces the point just made. Jesus is a man. He can only die once physically, right? But he was also God, right? Hypostatic union, just so we don't, <laughs> nobody says something to me. But he can only die once. Now, there's several points you could draw from the verse. One is that all of us have an appointment with death. We're all going to die. We know this. It's appointed for men to die. Appointed here means once. We die once, we're not coming back. And the point of the word once here is to stress uh, the, it's final, right? You die once, that's it. It's the one thing we all have in common that we don't know what it's like, right? Some of us, you know, we're not, we don't have to be afraid of it, knowing Christ, but you can still be, a, be wondering about the experience. My grandma was scared. Um, she knew she was saved. She, 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 she was just, she said, I'm scared. I was like, why are you scared? She was like, this, she was like because I, I just don't know what it's like. I said, nobody does. <laughs> uh, she didn't know what it was like, but it, it turned out it was good. Uh, but it was good. I knew she went on at that moment, but it only happens once. You don't get to come back. And all these people come back and then they say they have these things that I really don't, I don't really put much weight into that. I don't believe those most of the time. But it's the, the, just once. We die once. The objective of the text overall is that Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice, means that our physical death, mine, is not punitive, right? My death is not punishment for my sin. My sin has been borne away. My sin has been put away by the death of Christ. All right. So whether it's penal substitution or Christus Victor or whatever, uh, this, this, what Jesus has done has taken the place of what would happen to me if I wasn't in Christ. Jesus as a substitute died once and paid the sin debt once. And it's once for all. And then finally, in verse 28, it can seem a little odd or confusing because it says he'll, um, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So we have this like, what do you what like save appear to save like he's done that. Right. So I, I obviously do not have the time <laughs> to go all full end times here, okay, with this text, all right? This is an eschatological, like an end times, if you will, text. It's, it's a second coming text, and there's very many different takes on it, 
So I'm just, that's, that's what it is. But what, so I'm just leaving you there. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so what we have seen though is this great contrast, okay? The great contrast, which is indeed better and far more superior. We've also seen uh, the th uh, three types of appearances by Jesus here, in case you didn't notice. First, he was manifested, uh, verse 26, and that's the first appearance of Christ when he came to earth uh, in humanity to pay the pe penalty for our sins. Secondly, he appears in the presence of God for us. This, uh, this is his present ministry as we speak right now in heaven as our high priest. He sits at the right hand in the presence of God the Father. And then finally, he'll, uh, it says, appear a second time as a third appearance. So, and, and you can try to figure that one out if you want, because there's different takes, like, as I said. So that finishes chapter 9. And then we'll be, so we're, we're, we're getting close to a couple months, though, in this book. So, are there any questions, comments, disagreements? You got it? <laughs> okay. I mean, well, I don't. <laughs> I believe verse 28 is a second coming text, but we have to understand the phrase second coming. Um, and many, this, I don't want to blow people's minds here. <clears throat> the, the second coming as referred to in the Bible actually has to do with his parousia, what took place, a coming on the clouds in 70 AD. And I believe that's what they're saying. He's writing to people, again, remember, first century audience, audience relevance. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. They were eagerly awaiting all the, the temple, the tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices, to Judaism to get away so they could be saved and have a, a, a total inauguration or a consummation of, of the new covenant. He appeared in the clouds, if you will. It's not a physical, like we, we have been taught, right? Not this physical coming there. He appeared in the clouds, which is apocalyptic language. God used the Roman armies to come, take down the temple, destroy Jerusalem, because no more. And I believe that's what that means. That does not rule out the Lord coming back at some distant future time. Um, that's why I didn't get all into it. It's very... You have to go through a lot of stuff to completely understand it, but I studied it for two or three years, so <laughs> that's the way I see it. But um, you can take that view, or you can take the view that, yeah, he'll come back to save those, save us from this place to get us out of here. But that's almost a defeatism sometimes, a de defeat or an escapism to, hey, Lord, take us out of this world because it's so bad when Jesus actually prayed to the Father for us not to be taken out of this world, but for us to remain here. Uh, he prayed that because he has called us to 
uh, and commissioned us to disciple the nations. Uh, we are to spread the gospel. And uh, if you take that into all of world history, even the future, then all nations have not been discipled because that would mean all nations would, would be somewhat, at least three quarters or majority of them would be Christian. So, are you confused even more now? <laughs> no, just more interesting. Okay, okay. <laughs> 